0: Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. You
1: remember that a couple of weeks ago I uh, recommended Les Isaacs' book, uh, Dreadlocks, and um, uh, I just think it's a very, very good read for... um, yeah, and a potentially a very good book for reaching this, this sort of generation, the young generation um, last time I mentioned it um, we didn't have copies to sell but we do today, so at the end of the service you can buy this book for £5 I'm saying it's like a, a UK version of the Cross and the Switchblade and Run Baby Run, it is, it's absolutely brilliant, I found it very compelling um, and uh, having read it and now encouraging other people to read it uh, so you can buy this for £5. I suggest you buy it, read it, and then give it to someone who's not a Christian, who you would have thought might not be interested, but this, this is excellent, excellent book. So uh, today we are continuing our series on uh, the Beatitudes. And uh, we've reached the seventh Beatitude, and I'm going to describe it, and you'll, ex- you'll understand why, as the final one. But the seventh one is the, is the final one. It's the completion of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes being characteristics that God, through his Holy Spirit, is working in us. And uh, seven, interestingly enough, is the, it's the biblical number for completeness, for wholeness. Um, and you'll find that the next Beatitude, the eighth, and you could arguably the ninth, are not quite the same. They're not quite the same thing as the first 7 that they do link but they're not the same and uh, this week we're going to look at this uh, seventh beatitude which is blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God and before we begin I just want to pray and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to really work in our hearts this morning Father we give you thanks that you are with us we thank you for your presence we thank you for your spirit And we pray this morning that you would continue to speak. I pray, do a work, O God, in the hearts of individuals here. And I pray that you would do a work in this church. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. In in one of the books that I've been reading about the Beatitude, which I found really helpful, uh, by R.T. Kendall, he he describes the Beatitude almost as a spiritual ladder to maturity. And uh, I don't often do this, but I've done something here. Um, yeah, I'm having to, so walking over here, and, and I've just, yeah, yeah, I know, woos, 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 woos and whoops. Um, my love, you should have be been my assistant. Not really sure what I'm doing. Um, okay. Initially, the idea was far more glamorous than what it ended up, um, but... Uh, the, the point isn't how glamorous the idea is the point is the idea um, and Auntie Kendall describes them as a, a ladder to spiritual maturity i.e. the Beatitudes aren't, something, aren't things that you just get dumped upon in one go that they are things that grow in you as you grow and you remember right at the beginning if you can see down at the bottom uh, the first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and when I talked about that, I talked about that the way into the kingdom of heaven is brokenness. You might have thought it was, it was something else that you needed to have reached a particular level or standard of maturity or understanding or age, but actually it's brokenness. It's that sense where you can't do anything for yourself. If your car breaks down, there's nothing you can do if you're not a mechanic. You, 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 know, you don't know the first thing about how to change things. Brokenness is the way into the kingdom. It's the way into relationship with God. When you become a Christian the first thing that must happen to you is that you're broken. You recognise, I can't, I can't save myself. I can't do this on my own. I can't make myself right with God. There's something that has to be done for me. And that's the way in. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. It's through brokenness. Secondly, A few weeks ago, Kate looked at, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And and she made that a personal story. But mourning is really what happens when you suffer. When you suffer and you suffer loss, you're grieved. And that can be partly when you come to faith, there is a suffering, a grieving, a, a grieving over your own sin that, and your recognition I can't do anything about it I'm sinful I don't know whether you ever get to the stage I mean, you know, it's not the most positive thing I've ever said not that everything I say is ever positive but, but when you remember and realise oh there's nothing I can do at one level that can be very freeing but you can sometimes grieve over your own sin as you're wanting to pursue God and thirdly we talked about meekness the meek will inherit the earth, and we talked about the fact that meekness is that point where you are defenseless. That's why I loved when we just sang He's the Defender of the Weak because when we're meek, we're defenseless. I.e., we realize I cannot defend myself here. Moses is described as the meekest man on the earth, and what do you notice with Moses? God defends him all the time. Moses never justifies himself, Moses never explains himself. He looks to God. The people cry to Moses, Moses cries to God. The people criticise Moses, God comes and defends him. And defenselessness is when you're humbled by the reality that you're broken, that you're sinful. And you mourn that. And you get to that point where you think, oh, there's nothing I can do. But the next beatitude takes us out of that, and it's when we hunger and we Thirst for righteousness and the promises that you'll be filled if you hunger and thirst. It's about that desire that you have in your heart for God. It's that promise that he will satisfy. And those first four Beatitudes are all about the internal working of God in you. They're all about what God does in you. He, you, you, you become broken. Sometimes God doesn't break you. It's the revelation. He reveals, we respond. I, I, it gets re- revealed to me that I need to respond to him. That God, there's brokenness, there's suffering, there's defenselessness, and then there's this desire. And none of that is seen necessarily on the surface. It's all within us. And then the fifth beatitude is the first beatitude that, if you like, it's it's... It's the external response to all of that which God has been doing in you. And it's called to be merciful. To be merciful. And merciful is not natural for us, but it's godly. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. When we pray, you know, God forgive us as we forgive those. There's those links there. So God causes us through this process to become merciful, to show mercy to others as he has shown mercy to us. And it's the first external response of the Beatitudes. And it's when we look up and we begin to look around. It's an outward response. And then a couple of weeks ago, Phil talked about blessed are the pure in heart. And here again, it's interesting. We've looked around being merciful, but now we begin to look up. And as we look up, we see God. Why do we see God? Because we're undivided in our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart is about undivided. You're undivided. It's not mixed motives. It's not mixed intentions. It's not, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do that. I was reading in 1 Thessalonians and, and put, this morning, as just part of my reading, and, and Paul talks about, you know, we came to you with a pure heart. It's pure in heart. It's undivided. It's for the kingdom that we're doing this. It's not my stuff. So often we can do things and we can respond to God out of our own stuff. And that's like normal in some ways. God, something happens to me and I respond out of that. But actually when you get to the point where you're pure in heart, it's actually because God has taken even that away. And it's undivided. David was described as a man after God's own heart. There's something about that. Free from mixed motives, free from selfish ambition, free from desire for control, free from a desire for significance, free from those things. It's something that God does in us. And then this seventh beatitude. If the sixth one, we're looking up. In the seventh one, he's looking down and he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be sons of God of God. The highest place we can reach in God through his spirit is to be called his son and his daughter. And yes, we are his sons and daughters and that's a matter of fact, a legal entity, but the reality of living as his sons and daughters is when we become peacemakers, reconcilers. That's what happens When somebody's had this work in their lives, when the Holy Spirit has worked in them, they've become broken, they've suffered but he's comforted them, they've they've been defenceless and they've allowed God to defend on their behalf, where they have desired him and he's filled that desire, where they have received mercy and therefore are able to give mercy, where they have seen God because their heart is undivided, and where they become reconcilers, peacemakers. It's almost like what God says over us, because remember these are words that Jesus spoke. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And the ultimate peacemaker was Jesus himself. He was a peacemaker. So you have this work of internal, when we look around to one another, where we look up to God, where he almost endorses us, like he does his son um, in the waters of baptism. He speaks over us. The reason I say that, that's the completeness, is the next beatitude that Phil will look at next week is about external response to all that God is doing in you. And what is it? What's the the eighth beatitude? Does anyone know? Apart from Phil, because he's
0: he's
1: persecuted. persecuted. So blessed are those who are persecuted. So it's good that Phil's doing that, because you can imagine if I was doing that one, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those that when people insult you. But today, we're focusing on peace. We're focusing on peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Galatians 3.26 says, So just, we're, just so we're clear, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And the rights of sonship, as the Bible describes, are available to both men and women. This is not about um, uh, gender. This is not a gender issue. The rights of sonship come inheritance. They come a name. They come protection. It refers to the status of all Christians. Why? Because the biggest issue around sonship is adoption. We've been adopted into his family. We are called sons of God. We inherit. We have the privileges of being his children. In James 3 verse 17 it says this. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So a lot of those are the Beatitudes. This is what it, what it is when we get wisdom from above. It's peace loving, it's considerate, it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit. James tells us to sow in peace and we will reap a harvest of righteousness. So we'll be called sons of God. When the Bible talks about peace, the the, I've talked about this before, the Old Testament definition is, or Hebrew word is the word shalom, which speaks of wholeness and completeness, wholeness in life and relationships. It's what real peacemakers bring, wholeness. In his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy, found a very helpful book. He talks about three dimensions of peace. He talks about the peace that we have with God. In Romans 5, 1-2 it talks about faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and as a result of our faith in him we have peace with God. So the first thing that God does is he brings us peace with himself. The second thing he does is he brings us peace with others and Ephesians 2, to 17 talks about the peace that's achieved in relationships because of the cross. Because of the blood. And thirdly we find peace with ourselves. Now most of us, if we're really interested, most people, we're only really interested in peace with ourselves. I I want peace in my heart. I don't want to live with conflict within me. Sometimes I'm prepared to live with, you know, if I don't need to find peace with God, I won't. If I can live with conflict around me, I will, because no one really likes confrontation and conflict, but I don't want to live with conflict in me. So often we pursue inner peace. People become spiritual, not because they're seeking after God, but because they're seeking after inner peace. They want that peace in their hearts, but we know that true peace, true inner peace, can only ever be found through relationship with God. Because true inner peace begins with peace with Him. True inner peace includes peace with others. And do you know what true inner peace it's not just that I've I, I found Jesus and it's peaceful, but I live for him. I follow him. Yeah. When Christians have conflict, sometimes it might be because of the persecution, but sometimes it's because we haven't found peace with him, because we're not living for him. So living for him is really important. So what then is a peacemaker, as this passage says? talks about, and I, I want to talk about that in a moment, but before I do, I want to make a comment on what a peacemaker is not, just so we understand, and, and um, I want to say some things about that, but also i some guys, they're going to do a little drama, I'm getting really, really sort of visual here, uh, because things are changing, um, they're going to do a drama, and the, the drama is about the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking, a peacekeeper, and a peacemaker. So can I hand over to, I don't know who's, in the church you run away from. But yeah um, the reality of, of life is though that type of event happens all the time but often it's not that obvious because there's not necessarily an okay Kate and Ruth fighting like Ruth was going to punch her um, and, and it doesn't always resort to physical violence but but um, often verbally, we do exactly that, don't we? We fight, and then we we break off, and so we keep the peace, and we just do what we need to do to keep the peace. So peacekeeping is is not a bad thing. So it wasn't that Faith did a bad thing. It wasn't wrong that she tried to keep the peace. Sometimes. You need to do that. If you work in the food bank and volunteered in the food bank, you will know there are times when peacekeeping is the right thing to do. Yeah, You're not at that point trying to make peace, but you are trying to keep the peace in order that peace, um, food bank can just function. It can just happen. Sometimes you need to keep the peace. Keeping the peace is like, you know, when you live in a situation there's the absence of war, there's no violence, there's, there's, No conflict and and you're just trying to help maintain the peace and that can often be a good thing to do. It's good to be a peacekeeper. It's good to be a peacekeeper. But if you stop at peacekeeping, then you're going to miss something. Because what peacekeeping didn't do is it didn't resolve anything. It didn't resolve the issues. It didn't resolve the anger. It didn't deal with the stuff that was going on in the person. You know, you might be sitting there, maybe you're sitting there now and you think, yeah, do you know what, I'm, I'm in conflict with this person um, but we're, it's, at the moment it's, we're, we're at peace. And, and, and sometimes we can be mistaken into thinking that that peace that we're at, that peacekeeping peace is real. We think, oh well I thought we'd moved on. And then suddenly it flares up again and you realise, oh actually it hasn't moved on we're just keeping the peace. And if you notice what faith did uh, which was, you know, like she just separated them, and, and, and once she'd done that, she walked away. Abby's job was a lot harder, really. Abby was having to persuade and talk, oh, come on, and she was having to put up with lots of behaviours, and very good acting there. There been lots of sort of, a sort of aggression and, and anger directed at her because of the situation. Peacemaking was a harder thing to do. It's not easy to make a peace particularly not easy to make peace, say uh, when you're Abby in that situation and to be honest Abby could have just walked away she could have thought well you know, it's not my problem but actually she engaged with peace making peacemaking has two aspects to it, two main aspects to it I'm just going to mention those the first aspect is this it's what we saw in this Example, it's the resolution of a conflict. There's a conflict between people, and you resolve that conflict. And again, in his book, Ken Sande uh, talks about this. He talks about sort of um, four principles of, of peacemaking and resolving conflict. He talks about, um, like, so this is when you're, you're a Christian, you're trying to resolve conflict. The first thing that you need to do is make glorifying God your highest motive. So you're not just in it for yourself. You're not in it just to try and get, see what you can get out of it. Glorifying God is your highest motive when it comes to peacemaking. Particularly if you are trying to make peace with somebody else. Maybe there's not a third party. Sometimes you have to do it yourselves. Secondly, get the log out of your own eye. Before you confront others, examine yourself. Yeah? It's very easy to point out uh, stuff in other people. But before you do that, just just have a sober perspective on yourself. Look at yourself. And look at your role in that conflict. The third thing is, it says in Matthew 18, go and show your brother or your sister their fault. The emphasis here is showing your brother or your sister their fault, not telling your friends about their fault. Because so often when we Go about sorting things. um, We, you know, we do it in a very, very sort of convoluted way. Let's just take the example. Instead of uh, Kate and you know Abby coming in and bringing them together, Kate goes and tells someone else about the problems that she's having with Ruth. And at one level, you think, well, that can be really helpful because sometimes people, you know, I need to get things off my chest. I need to say what I'm thinking and stuff. But but really, the highest motive must be the resolution of the issue that you have with that person. Go show your brother their fault. And the passage actually goes on and says, just between the two of you. That's what it says in Matthew 18, verse 15. Go show your brother his fault, just between the two of you. So initially, that should be your response to peacemaking. There are obviously occasions where it's, it's appropriate to bring someone in, and again the passage says, and if your brother then won't listen, you know, bring other people in and, and, and take it forward from there. And the fourth principle of resolving conflict is to be reconciled. So it was interesting when when, uh, Abby finally brought Kate and Ruth together, certainly what I noticed was, you know, they they were pretending to be angry with one another because they're not really. And they wanted to hug, they wanted to hug. And uh, in the end, they had to let's do the anger bit and then let's just hug. So you have to be reconciled. Where you can, be reconciled. Make reconciliation your goal. If reconciliation is your goal, that will affect your process through making peace. Because if reconciliation isn't your goal, you can destroy a relationship and you won't care. You don't care. So when it comes to personal peace, resolving conflict, make glorifying God your highest goal. Go show your, get the log out of your own hide. Look in the mirror and go, do you know what? I'm not perfect. And even in this situation, I'm not perfect, I haven't done everything right. Go show your brother his fault, just between the two of you. And then, where possible, go and be reconciled. There are occasions when you can't be reconciled. But the Bible even allows for that. It says, says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But as far as it depends on you, there are times when you can't reconcile something. And there are times when you need to keep the peace till it's appropriate to reconcile things. But there is a process that the scripture gives us. It's really interesting. This book by Ken Sandy. Ken Sandy is a he's a lawyer, and what he does is he is he is he, he basically he's involved in, in sort of litigation and helping people sort out personal conflicts. And I think what inspired him to write the book was he was amazed this is in America how many Christians take other Christians to court to resolve their issues, to sort out their problems. And, and in the end, he was like, this is just ridiculous. The Bible tells us not to do that. <laughs> and yet we go ahead and we do that. And so people are making money off the back of... It, what sort of witness is that when you, you, know, you phone up a solicitor, and you know, they might not be Christian, you say, "Yeah, I need to take this person to court because of this, 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 and this. And he was like, no, actually, this is Ridiculous if ever there was a process for restoring peace, the scripture has one. Resolving personal conflict. And that's the first aspect of peacemaking. It's more complex than peacekeeping because you need to listen. Abby needed to listen and acknowledge and be empathetic, which is why we need to have an undivided heart. Because Abby might have gone to Ruth and Abby herself might have had issues with Kay, And so then when Ruth starts, she goes oh, do you know, yeah, I have the same.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that just just build it up. Abby can't be a peacemaker if her heart is divided. Not a real peacemaker. Because quite possibly then, you know, Ruth can get Abby on side, realising, oh I can get Abby on my side and we can both go. You know, sometimes you do that, you know, you you get other people to feel what you've been feeling. Oh yeah, I've been feeling this and, and you're very general about it and they think, oh yeah, I've occasionally felt that. So they sort of get drawn in and you both now begin to feel something and you think, well, do you know what, we need to do something about this. Do you know what, there is no justification in peacemaking for saying things like, and we often do this, well, you know, they know how I feel. Now I'm, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you, but if I have an issue with Phil and I tell that issue to Peter, it's not justified because I've spoken to Phil about it. That doesn't justify me telling Peter my issue with Phil. Now I can sometimes think it does because I want well, at least I'm being honest. You know, surely you've got to be honest. Honesty isn't the highest goal here. The glorification of God is the highest goal, is the witness. You know, t- telling Peter because I've told Phil doesn't make that right. And as Christians, there's there's huge amounts in the Bible that equips us to become peacemakers in personal conflict and I would encourage us to do that. But peacemaking has another aspect to it. On the one hand there is that resolution of personal conflict but on the other hand there is this. Peacemaking is about restoring things to the way they're meant to be. Restoring things to the way they're meant to be. And it's equally important. This is about Shalom, wholeness, rightness, completeness. Sometimes we live with tension because things aren't the way they're meant to be. Not because there's a personal conflict. I might not even have a personal conflict, but because things aren't the way they're meant to be, I can live with tension. I mean, if you've ever watched um, uh, Super Nanny, I mean, if you ever watched Super Nanny. Yeah just, yeah, just be honest. Yeah, I've watched it. I wanted to turn it off uh, because it just exposes things in me. Um, but if you watch Super Nanny, uh often, and, and I know they dramatise it, and the first ten minutes of the programme, you're thinking, "Sheesh, what on earth is wrong with these children? Yeah, they should be going, the parents need to take them somewhere. Yeah, you think that you're watching the programme and you're thinking, "My goodness, how did you get like this? Yeah," and you're thinking. These children, they're the worst children in the world and we have all sorts of negative thoughts about them. And yet, we know this because we've seen it before, by the end of the program, we're going to be not looking at the children, we're going to be turning to the parents and going, really? (laughs) We know we're going to do that. And yet, at the beginning, you're still thinking, my goodness, that kid, he must have a demon in him to behave like that. Yeah? That's what I think. And I've got children, so I know some of those realities. Yeah? But what you realise, and Supernanny has got this, I don't know whether she's a Christian, she may not be, but what she's got is this, what she's understood is this. There is a way things are meant to work. And if you don't work it that way, life can become much more awkward than it has to be. Yeah? Children, two of my children here, but children are are not meant to run homes, yeah? Where they're parents. They're They're not meant to do that, yeah? So when they start doing that, it's because something's not working right. Yeah? Something's not worked right so that suddenly children are making decisions about how things function in the home, and decisions are being made, or made because of the way the children are, not because the parents think that's the right thing necessarily. That's not meant to happen. Yeah? Parents are meant to run homes. Children, according to the Bible, are meant to obey their parents. Fathers are not meant to exasperate their children, I know. But that's not meant to be how it is. So peacemaking, and what Supernanny does, is she makes peace. She doesn't make peace by saying, you say sorry, you say sorry. She makes peace by restoring things to the way they're meant to be. Parents, you need to take authority here. That's your role here. Yeah? If you don't take authority, you, if, you, if you throw that out the window and you start arguing with your kids like you're a kid, yeah, that, that's not how you teach them to grow. That's not how you teach them. That's not how they learn to submit to authority. They don't learn that if you don't do that. Peacemaking is, is restorative. Conflict resolution is part of that, but sometimes, you, because conflict resolution it sometimes comes into just that restoring process but it is about restoring order it's about getting things in proper alignment things in the in the right place you know we often do this when when and i talk about uh, marriage we talk about get your marriage as it's meant to be and it will work better make sure you're on the both on the same page when it comes to marriage if if you're thinking about your relationship in this way and your partner's thinking about it that way you're going to clash And that clash and that tension, and then you go down and you're trying to make peace and you're thinking, why doesn't it work? Well, it doesn't work because you just haven't ordered it right. You need to order it right. There is a way that we're meant to live. So peacemaking itself can involve conflict, and we don't like conflict, so we rather just keep the peace. So I would do what I need to do to keep the peace. And I'll put a lot of energy, expend energy in keeping the peace, but I won't make a peace. If I made peace, I wouldn't need to keep the peace so much. But making peace might, might require, as it was Abby, going over to someone who then flares up in front of me and, oh, I don't want that. I don't want all that shouting. Yeah, I don't want all that issue, all that stuff. So I'll just, you know, I'll be faith. I won't be Abby. Peacemaking turns dysfunctional relationships into functional ones. And do you know what? And sometimes this can be more difficult because in your dysfunctional relationship, you might be quite happy. But underneath, it's dysfunctional. And therefore you think to yourself, okay, how do I make peace then? Because making peace might involve conflict in order to get it right. But sometimes you have to do that. We're called to be peacemakers. We're called to make this journey to the seventh beatitude. And the seventh beatitude represents a higher level of spiritual maturity where I can peacemake, where I can help others. And peacemaking is more than just what I do in, in you know, restoring, say, in a family or, or a home or resolving things one-to-one. Actually, peacemaking is much bigger than that. So I was reminded this week of, a, uh, yeah, of an event 20 years ago. I hadn't, I hadn't even clocked it. It was only this week I, I became aware of it and, and done a little bit of work around it. That today is the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. 20 years ago, on the 6th of April, the president of Rwanda was murdered. His plane was shot down. And from the 7th of April to sometime in July, so that's like 100 days, between 800,000 and a million people were killed in that country. It was about 20% of the population. And it was a genocide as opposed to a war. And I hadn't realised that. And the genocide being that one group of people just attacked another group of people. And it was clear from uh, very early on, it was clear that this wasn't just a, a spontaneous reaction to what happened on the 6th. That it was thought about, it was planned. People knew. And in some ways, if you ever watched any of those films, Hotel Rwanda or Shooting Dogs, both the films that talk about it, it's not dissimilar to what you know you read about with the Holocaust and the Jews and in terms of the attitude that people had towards what once upon a time were their neighbours. The person who lived next door suddenly was your enemy. And it's really interesting because when you read about that and it's in many, many ways it's a sad indictment on the world because it wasn't that we were unaware of it, but actually we didn't do very much to intervene. In fact, some of our actions were probably the opposite of help. And there's a bit in the film, Hotel Rwanda, where they're outside the hotel and they're interviewing the head of the UN. The UN were present at the time, and uh, they're asking him, what are you going to do about it? And he said, look, my orders are that we can't shoot. We can't shoot people. We're here as peacekeepers, not peacemakers. That's what he says. We're here to keep the peace, not to make a peace. In the other film I, I watched, Shooting Dogs, the, the UN observer says, We're not even here as peacekeepers, we're here as peace observers. We're just observing the peace. And because they were peacekeepers, not peacemakers, and particularly in, in the film Shooting Dogs, which is very very powerful it's the story of a school and two and a half thousand Tutsis found refuge in this school and there was about I don't know 50 UN peacekeepers observers who were there and they were there and then the French sent a whole load of armed forces in to get the French people out and other sort of Westerners so they all came out but they weren't taking any Africans out and then you've got these UN observers who are there, and um, uh, you know, there comes a point where the orders come from on high that you're to leave, you're to leave the school. And so they leave the school, and probably within days, if not hours, all of those people in the school were killed because they came out. Why do I share that? I share that partly because at the beginning of this week I was just going to talk about personal resolving conflict one to one, me and my wife, you and your friend and I just think God put a bigger thing on me to talk about peacemaking, it's much bigger than that and I felt actually that in acknowledging that and in in a moment we're going to in fact I'm going to get Thierry up because there's a member of our church who is Rwandan and uh, we're just going to just have a little conversation with him. But, but there is something... It just reminded me a little bit of what we're called to do as a church, that we, we're not called to keep peace, but we are called to make peace. We're called to learn how to make peace personally, one-to-one, resolve my conflict. But actually, as a community, we're called to make peace in Brixton. And if you know anything about the history of Brixton, you'll know it's been a place of conflict. It's been a place where blood has been spilled. It's been a place of anger. It's been a place of um, resentment. So if you just walk down Brixton now, you think, "Oh man, it's changing. It's great. You know, this is happening. That's happening." But but people are keeping the peace. The peace has been kept, but it hasn't been made. There's deep, deep, deep division. And God's placed us here. Yeah, we didn't choose it. You know that. We didn't choose to come to Brixton. I wasn't clapping my hands. I came to Brixton. (laughs) But God has brought us here. God has reminded us of this this anniversary where we're going to pray for this country that needs to have peace made. And that we're going to pray that peace gets made here. Because if you don't make peace, there will always be a moment where your keeping the peace isn't enough. And it comes up again. Okay, well, Thierry, why don't you come out? And uh, we can give Terry a round of applause if, you, if you to do that. Can that, does that. Does that work as well, or is that going to be like a complicated thing? Sorry. There are more technical issues than normal. But thank the guys for all that they do do. Okay. Well, Thierry, um, you know, I hadn't been planning to do this, and, and uh, we had a conversation in the week, and uh, you had said to me, oh, I was wanting to ask you to, to pray for Rwanda, but I think by then I'd already watched one of the films, and I'd noticed the timing of that, the 6th of April. So, um, and yeah, 29. 20 years ago, your homeland was was really decimated and you yourself were a a Tutsi. And, uh, you know, I I was thinking it was a war and then as I watched these movies and read a bit, I realised it wasn't actually a war. It wasn't a battle between two sides that was almost the systematic sort of killing of a particular group of people. Can you just give us a little bit of the history of that conflict and, and where you were at the time and why
0: you were there? That's a big question for me to answer. Yeah, as Owen said, actually, 94 was just the trigger of something that I was prepared for many years, before I was even born myself. I wasn't, in, I wasn't born in Rwanda being Rwanda, so I was born in exile never a neighboring country DRC, because my parents fled Rwanda in 59. So there was an attempt started genocide in 59. That's a long time ago. So a big Rwandan community, mainly Tutsi, left Rwanda to neighboring countries. So mainly due to I think change of power, Rwanda was under kingdom leadership for many years. And uh, the kings were always coming from the Tutsi tribe. Uh, It was accepted like that until Rwanda was under uh, Dutch and Belgian coloni- colonizers. Yes. So I think there was divide and rule, which basically foreign forces used to make sure they have an upper hand to the administration and management, not only of Rwanda, but of many African countries, so Rwanda faced the same. Fifty-nine. 1959, uh, the kingdom that was there was actually thrown out and replaced by Hutu, or what I would call um, Hutu leadership, because at the time, again, the church, Catholic church, which was powerful at the time, um, worked together with the Belgians, politicians. Uh, to ensure that Hutu came to power. But to do that they used violence, so Tutsis were killed, and many ended up in exile, and that's how myself was born, in exile. Okay.
1: Um, and so, uh, in 94, you returned to Rwanda, for you, probably the first time you, you go to Rwanda. Um, how old were you, because so that was maybe three months after the genocide had finished? Um, How old were you at that time? And just describe what that was like.
0: I was almost 13 when we came back to Rwanda. That was two months after the genocide. And um, I was young, but I think very old to understand what's going on. So hard, really, to describe dead bodies on the streets everywhere. Uh, I remember we had no house in Rwanda. Although my parents were from Rwanda, we had no house to live. So people were occupying empty houses left by either Tutsi families who were killed or genocide perpetrators who had fled the country to neighboring countries. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I remember the first house uh, my parents looked at was full of this family which was completely killed so you could still see dead bodies in this house, uh, it's very traumatic for somebody of that age to to see, to see those kind of things. And I know that uh,
1: your family fled, but some of your wider family didn't flee. Can you say
0: something about that? Yeah, so my family left in 59, but not all of them. Uh, some of my, what I would call maybe uncles, are left, left, and some stayed. But for those who stayed, we didn't find any back in Rwanda. All of them were killed, and um, we don't know how they were killed. We don't know where they were buried. So um, it is quite hard to understand. And I think many Rwandan families who were living in Burundi as well had a similar, similar problem.
1: So in the, in these last. Um, uh, really 20, 20 years, because your, your mum is still alive. Um, how, have, how has your country and you, sort of your family, t- t- sought to come to terms with what, what happened?
0: It's quite hard to describe because 20 years back, Rwanda I was in the country, uh, it was quite hard to see a smile on people's face however all though small they were, it was quite traumatic. When you look back, it's hard to believe what's, what you see. I mean, if you're a foreigner, you go to Rwanda, and you've known about the genocide, what people were watching on TV, it's quite hard to believe. People are smiling and hospitable, happy. Um, but of course I think Rwanda is still a very broken society. There is quite a lot going on development, uh, socio-economic development, but I would think people's hearts are still broken. Uh, some have forgiven, some have confessed their role in the genocide, justice has been restored to many families, but I think there is a long way to go because some people still believe they can do what they did. they can still kill. Uh, I witnessed this when I was working with genocide perpetrators, so doing research with these people in prisons. And these were people who had confessed they had a role in the genocide. So they they confessed for killing people in the genocide. And uh, this was part of the unity and reconciliation, where you had to confess what was your role in the genocide to have your sentence reduced. So you would expect these people Uh, to have repented and saying this was awful we are not going to do this anymore but having gone through that some still believe they didn't finish their work so they can still go out and kill and you do get these kind of uh, situations people are freed from the jail they go in their village they would either kill their wife uh, neighbor because of just a small conflict they have. So to cut a long story short, I think Rwanda has come a long way and has still got a long way to go. Uh, It is a very peaceful country now, but I think under the surface, people's hearts are still broken. There is a huge uh, uh, traumatic uh, situation I mean, you, you have your entire family killed and you are asked just to forgive because somebody came to you and said, I'm sorry. I, I don't think that's enough. Uh, you may just feel it's enough, but along along the way, it's very, very difficult.
1: And just, just one final question. I, you know, I was just listening to the news the other day and, and I hear that the the French are refusing to go to the uh, the, the, the commemorative service tomorrow in Rwanda. Because I suppose there's just a dispute the the Rwandans believe that the the French had a role in this I don't know whether they believe it was a direct role or whether their actions led to some stuff and and the French in a sense are, are denying that or refusing to accept that so in a sense even at that level there's still peace to be made I suppose but just say something of your you know and you're, and you're aware of all, all of that just say something of your your hope and your prayer and what, you know what would you like us to join you in, in prayer for your your country
0: I think one of the priority would be truth I think truth has proven to be extremely important in bringing people together I've seen a couple of examples of people just come out and say I'm sorry I killed your family, but I'm extremely sorry. I'm the one who did it. And it is good for these genocide survivors to see somebody coming forward and at least telling them how their beloved ones were killed. So truth is very important, but of course very hard uh, to, to have. Second is just for a peaceful society and prosperous society because people still think that genocide was caused by poverty. And some would say if the country was very poor and people were very poor, there is a high risk of going back again and doing a genocide. It could be right, it could be wrong, but I think it would be good for praying for a peaceful society. And the unity and reconciliation process that has started yeah, it's very important. But of course, it's good also to have uh, the international community. I mean, you may feel there is no obligation for Britain or Burundi to support Rwanda. But if we bring it in the whole uh, Christian community, in the whole humanity cause, I think it will make more sense. I think Rwanda is not happy with France mainly because of Lack of truth. And I don't think it's good for a powerful country like France to recognize whatever happened or whatever they were involved in in Rwanda. It is a shame for a superpower country like France. Truth is important, unity and reconciliation, peace. Yeah. And of course, this was a society where 90% of the population. Was declared Christians. So Christians killed Christians. It's a real transformation
1: that's needed. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Thierry. Thank you. Okay. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording.